0: We are in Champions League, man. Dilly Din, Dilly Dong, come on. Into
1: Sherringham and Soul (laughs) Charis. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kerning.
0: Hello, welcome to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Curnine. Join us for this episode is Adam Thornton, author of the brand new book, Gerard's Blueprint, In-Depth Inside Look at Stephen Gerrard's tactical work at Rangers. I've read the book. I loved it. I wanted to get him on for a chat. We also talk about three specific things using some visuals from the book. And if you wanna go and check those out and, and reference those on the chat, it's available on the YouTube page. Please go on there, Gary Cardeen on YouTube. Also, if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube page, there's a good opportunity to do it. We're putting a lot of content up there, weekly tactical chats. The last one that we did was on Sunday on pressing in a four four 5 different variations. So we put one on every week. YouTube is something that I've been focusing on over the last six months. So... If you enjoy the content of Modern Soccer Coach and you haven't subscribed to YouTube, please go ahead and do it. Before we start with Adam, massive thanks to Keyframe for teaming up with us on another interview. Telestration software is easy to use, it's affordable, and it can take your coaching to a new level. I've used Keyframe for a couple of years and I still use them. Absolutely brilliant, improves understanding, aids retention, saves time when you're coaching coaching doing those videos with the players that you know the players appreciate with the animations and those presentations, check out Keyframe on the link below on keyframesports.com. Okay, here's Adam. Let's go. All right, Adam, thanks so much for joining us today on the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. Really, really excited to have you on.
1: Thanks, Gary. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Congrats on the book, and thank you for sending me a copy. It took me a couple of weeks to get there, but it's just totally there. just finished it. Um, loved it. Loved hearing and reading about different perspectives that I wasn't really aware of, to be honest. So, um, how long did it take you to put together?
1: Uh, well, it was a bit of a saga, uh, to be honest, because um, I I had the idea during lockdown, obviously, um, but I only really started to think about it properly around about February March time, so just when Rangers were were pretty much champions, um, we were we won the league mathematically on the the 7th of March 2021. So round about then, got everything signed off with the publisher and and basically started writing. But it's the the first book I've ever done. I've got two young kids we are in lockdown, full time job, uh, working from home with the kids, all that stuff. So it took me a lot longer than I I thought. But um, I got my first draft complete uh, round about the middle of October, I think, and, and sent it off to the publisher. And then Stephen Gerrard only went and quit about two weeks later, so um, I, I pushed it back a little bit. The publisher was trying to get me to basically turn it into a, a kind of coaching manual that would appeal to Aston Villa fans as well. But obviously, having read the book yourself, you will know it's it's very much about the Rangers players rather as well as the as well as the sort of tactical philosophy. So I, I, I pushed back on that, uh, and we got a bit of a delay, and it um at that point. Um that let me look at things, I guess, take stock and, and think about things in the past tense now that we actually had a had a kind of full stop, if you like, because one of the things I found maybe this time last year was even though it's about winning that title in those three years and nothing can change that, writing a book when every game can change people's opinion on on, on something. So if if someone goes through a bad patch but I'm writing in the book about how great they were um, it can be quite tricky uh, from that point of view. So the fact that not necessarily history was was changing, but how people think of of certain things was maybe changing game to game. While I'm trying to write a book, was was pretty stressful. So at least we had that that sort of full stop there, where Gerard and Bill had left, and and nothing could sort of change the perception. I guess at that point, um, the delay was good. So like I said, I was able to go into a lot more depth. I got some visualizations, illustrations done, which I'm sure you've seen from the book. I managed to get them done as well, which wouldn't have been in the book the first time round. So um, the break was a little bit frustrating, I guess, and obviously quite stressful. But um, being able to spend that extra time over, um, I guess, over Christmas last year, just really to put the finishing touches on it was was great. Um, it then was finished about March, April time, and we were trying to get a June release. But with Brexit and shipping delays and Cost eleven, all that sort of stuff. Um, it it was pushed back again and again until we actually managed to get it released, uh 29th of August. So just about two, two and a bit weeks ago. So all in all, it was about eighteen months from idea to publication, and then probably about eight months of me working nine o'clock at night to two in the morning every 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 midweek night just to try and get try and get things done. So it was pretty a labour of love, absolutely.
0: Brilliant, Brilliant. Uh, it's fascinating to hear the whole. The whole process. Listen, you've you told me that it's that it's out, so we're going to put the links below and and for everyone to get it. So I wanted to for this interview rather than to just get generalised and ruin the book. And pace, I want to go into three areas that kind of jumped out to me, and I'm going to support that. If you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, you can get these visuals that I'm that I'm going to just put up here in the book. Um, I'm making sure, I promise you, Adam, I'm not going to ruin it for. There's plenty yeah. more. These are just. These are just a few clips. So the first question that I wanted to ask you here, and pressing, um, you talk about uh, the the pressing strategy in in quite a lot of depth. I wanted to take this picture and kind of use it as a reference point to ask you. Um, talk about the use of triangles that that Gerrard used whenever he was when he was pressing.
1: Yeah. So it's probably it was different on each side of the park on, on the, the sort of left and right but i think the left probably sums up the philosophy i guess um out of possession where, where he had borna barisic as a, a kind of crossing machine if you like maybe an old a, an older-fashioned folk he, he's not going to get up and down the wing and he's not going to score lots of goals and he's not going to be a, a massive creator in terms of coming in on the underlap he's his strength is basically getting him into a position to cross the ball into the box. He had a phenomenal uh, amount of success, just a terrific pinpoint crosser. So um, it it was sort of built on that. Um, You had uh, Glenn Kamara um, there, who I think in the book I've described as uh, a tactical chameleon. Uh, And he's basically just one of these players who you could put into, I think to date, he's probably played five different roles for Rangers, all of the midfield roles and maybe some of the, you do put him in there; he'll do a certain job. He's the kind glue that holds left hand together. When when the right back brings the ball out, you've maybe got Ryan Kent just staying a little bit higher. But Kamara's the one that goes out and gives that little cover shadow just to try and get get the full back to make a decision. Um, so I think that was that was really key. Um, Ryan Kent as well has his ability uh, both on and off the ball um, was was fantastic uh in, in that season specifically. You don't normally think i guess maybe you do these days but certainly for rangers when we we're used to maybe luxurious left-wingers uh, in the past who maybe don't track back or or are are those kind of luxury players kent's work off the ball was was absolutely massive he would just i think for anyone um listening last year when you think about games like maybe borussia dortmund away in the european run um or, or even maybe save at home, etc. cetera, the, the amount of effort he puts in off the ball to do those hard yards to win the ball back. Um, so the three of them had a sort of defined role and they each performed sort of pressing in, in slightly different zones in slightly different ways, but it was more about, I guess, how how the three of them come together. Um, there's several examples through the book of them all combining to create a goal um, as well, sort of on the ball, position-wise, but then off the ball, um, that left-hand side was was such a huge unit um, and it meant that basically what we were trying to do is sort of force them down that flank, try and get the ball off of them using their kind of mid to high press. Uh, and then once we had it, it obviously opened up um, the counter-pressing strategy.
0: You, you talk about uh, the, that they favoured a mid-block over, you know, really, really high starting points. Would Gerard, why was that?
1: I think it was uh, certainly it's really difficult because you've got you've got such w- widely varying uh approach positions that are kind of mentioned on the fifty five season you'd, ha- you'd have you would have Benfica coming to Brooks you've had Porto um the year before um big teams that are going to come and and want to dominate you um and then that's the Thursday night and then on the Sunday you're playing Motherwell who have came a few times and played um a 550 five, formation and just literally sat on on the edge of the box so i think that that mid block was one that sort of could work for both um but it would i guess domestically it would help to draw the team out um you'd see certainly the front three wouldn't be massively aggressive in terms of their their pressing they'd maybe sit back a little bit and draw the team out and try and get them to make the first pass before they would then be swamped by a Kamara or a Ryan Jack or a, or a Tavernier. So um, I think the mid-block was something they probably settled on to. First of all, give them defensive solidity, which I think is, is huge for, for Gerard's given what he inherited when he came in. He said that having that defensive um, shape there was was huge. So that point, first of all. But then I think the mid-block just helped them further up the park to stay in shape, but also coax the opposition out to try and make a, make a mistake and then capitalise on it that way.
0: Uh, you also wrote that Rangers deliberately instructed their three forward to stay high and only track back when out of possession, with a deliberate intent of ensuring they are in a position to attack quickly should the ball be won. So was that was almost the, the their attack strategy then? those those front yeah. three got a little bit more leeway defensively with the duties when the ball was a bit a bit deeper.
1: Yeah, and, and it did vary, like I said. Ryan Kent would, would press back maybe in, in bigger games or in certain situations, absolutely. But on the whole, I think the, the tactical change that was made at the start of the first season was to bring bring the wingers in and make them twin 10s. And by doing that, we wanted to get more control and the and have them more settle, have them supporting Alfredo Morelos more because he was becoming quite isolated. So there was sort of two sides to that. But, but certainly from then, the wingers were less had less of a direct relationship with the fullbacks, and it was maybe more of a turned it into that triangle, if you like, where they were the the tip of the triangle, not necessarily pressing frantically, but as soon as the ball came past them, the the outside midfielders would be pressing, and then if we won the ball back, obviously the front three are in a pretty good position to to take advantage of it.
0: When when Klopp leaves Liverpool, uh, I know he's not under any pressure at the minute, and and obviously like Gerard. Is probably going to be a name that comes up, um, and Klopp's characteristics of this high pressing style. I mean, where do you think he stands on that? Klopp being here as a high pressing coach, where where is Gerard?
1: Um, I, I would say he's maybe that deal. If Klopp's a 10, I would say he's maybe a, a seven. Uh, I think it's not, it's absolutely not all out pressing. There was arguments that we could have done it a lot more and, and suffocated teams all over we always had that sort of inbuilt um, cautious optimism if you like where we would be solid first, we'd be obsessed with. In that first season we probably pressed it a lot and it was probably not as structured as it could be which meant we were still getting caught in, in transition. There's, there's several games, big European games where we've lost uh, goals in, in the last minutes by having a sort of ragged out of possession structure because we're still trying to chase chase the win so i think probably similar to klopp over the years he's maybe he maybe refined it a little bit and made it a little bit more um flexible if you like but i would still say it's nowhere near what we see um half the teams in in the premier league doing for and i think that probably probably plays out with with villa i'm sure many would say they're a high pressing team just now they're for me they're a team that are trying to play possession football but they maybe don't quite have the amount of players or certainly the amount of quality of players to be to be able to do it so I would say it probably roughly aligns to where they are just now I would say six or a seven if clock's are 10 yeah
0: okay then moving it into positional rotations um I'm gonna put out a, a quote here from Michael Bale on the coach's voice that's in the book the formation you choose is not all that important, whatever on paper formation, the players can form different shapes in game and the freedom to rotate is key, making this happen. The ability to be flexible and unpredictable is key in the modern game. It sounds great, Uh, you know, as a coach, sounds brilliant to have this philosophy of freedom and uh, how did Gerard balance structure, again, almost in a spectrum, where was structure and where was freedom and, and how did he balance that?
1: Um I think this is a this is an interesting one. Um in year one, I would say there was there was very limited rotation, uh position rotation. I would say it was a pretty bulk standard four three three. You had a a midfield destroyer, maybe two two box to box um ball carriers, and then you'd have wings, I guess. Uh, Ryan Kent and Daniel Candias, two sort of old-fashioned wingers, and then Morelos up front uh, as the focal point, and that maybe played out just in a sort of standard way, as you would expect. The the sort of width coming from the fullbacks and the wingers, the midfield being functional but able to try and get forward and Harry, but th- their job was to basically destroy and, and give the ball to other players. Um, but then it sort of changed with the introduction uh, towards the end of the season of, of Stephen Davis and glamara who are much more um ball playing midfielders, uh, shall we say, so they're more likely to come in and control the tempo uh and maybe over that more solid base to allow more flexibility to happen further up the park. Um and then when we get into the second season we start to see players like um Uribo, who's obviously now at Southampton and is very, very flexible. I think they call him a hybrid footballer in in the in the book. He's another one who from the top of my head played left back Every midfield position and every forward position for Rangers. So so seven positions out of, out of the 10. Basically, he, he played um, during these three years at the club. So that, I guess, literally he was rotating positionally because sometimes he'd be playing a completely different position game to game. But in terms of what we're talking about here, he was crucial for it because... Him playing as a right winger didn't give what maybe Daniel Kondias did as a sort of old-fashioned winger. So he he had a lot more flexibility, he would roam from his position. So sometimes it happened naturally. Um, Other games, one that springs to mind that I have in the book was a a 5-0 win against uh, Aberdeen in September 2019, where we played uh, Greg Stewart um, and Scott Arfield as Stewart sort of played as the right-sided number 10 and Arfield played as the right-sided number 8. Now, both of them are, are very similar players. They're, they're not pacey. They're not necessarily fantastic on the ball, but their, their movement off the ball and their ability to run in behind uh, and get on the end of things was key. Both of them basically switched at will during this game. Um, Aberdeen employed a, a pretty rigid man marking um, system at this time against Rangers, and with both of them sort of moving horizontally and vertically, their marker was following them ridic to to ridiculous points was following them all over the park and it just left so much space in there so I think that game probably sums it up for me it probably didn't happen off uh, the positional rotation piece and certainly as we've passed fifty five and into um ultimately the 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 last few months of of Gerard Rain, I think it was something that we probably could have done uh, a little bit more um but the rotation aspect was was absolutely there and I think that's probably talks to that point that Michael Bill mentioned. If you speak to most Rangers fans and probably most Villa fans, they would say that, that Gerard's style is very rigid and never changes. Um, It's pretty much a 4-3-3 or a 4-3-2-1, and, and that's it. Um, I think that's probably true as a base shape, but as we talk about in the book, different players, for me, can do different things. For example, we've got Alfredo Morelos up front, in the games that Jermaine Defoe plays, he doesn't play it in the same way that he plays. If if Daniel Candace as a winger is playing versus Kamar Roof as a sort of inside forward, they're not playing in the same way. So naturally the shape's going to change from half to half, game to game, minute to minute, probably so that the flexibility that they brought into the team was was more about the players rather than impacting the structure and just completely throwing the plan out and going... I don't know three four three or something that was that was never going to happen but the, there was a bit more flexibility than I think people um, really gave them credit for.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Um, you mentioned in the book about Rangers playing deliberately with a slower tempo in some games in the build. Why did they do that?
1: I think that was also a, a drawn out aspect as well. Um, there were certain games, um, a couple that spring to mind um in in the 55 season where we played uh motherwell uh, away from home and then also celtic at, at parkhead um we won both games motherwell i think was was 5-1 or 5-0 celtic was one of the most complete rangers performances i've seen we beat them 2-0 um and it probably could have been about 10-0 and the reasons for that were both teams played a, a back 3 or a back 5 uh in motherwell's case um and the, the game plan in those games was was to give the ball to our fullbacks, who we deliberately kept um, deeper than they would normally be. Obviously, they were ultra-attacking. That was where all our width came from. But in those games, we kept our fullbacks deeper. We played at a slower tempo. We would build up a lot slower. And what that meant is that Mullerwell and Celtic's fullbacks then had to come up the pitch 10 or 15 yards. Um, and then as soon as that happened, we would up the tempo uh, and play. There's a really good example... Um, of a goal that that Jordan Jones scored uh, against Motherwell, uh, and you see that where we've dragged out their left back, there's a little quick interplay I think with with Tavernier and, and Scott Arfield. Um, Jones makes the run, and there's a pretty rudimentary ball in the channel behind the left back for Jones to run onto and, and score. So it was a little bit of a um, rope-a-dope type thing I think if you want to call it that in terms of uh, drawing a team out um, by playing slower. Uh, and then, as soon as you see, as soon as you see the opening, uh, they speed up a little bit.
0: Very interesting. Um, and then another piece in the book uh, you've written up um, a couple of pages on occupying width, searching for depth, and those two, very good like coaching circles, that's that's something that people are are talking about at the minute. Um, I know uh, Jonas Munkvold uh, who's a who's a Norwegian coach uh, done a really really good piece on it with a four four two book. What I want to ask you is: it, why is it occupying with? Why are you searching for the depth? Why isn't it occupying depth or searching for width? Why did? Why is the choice of language?
1: It's all from Michael Bill. To be honest, it's it's pretty much his his words, and I think it it didn't make sense to me until until I, I I watched the video or or whatever it was I was I was doing, and he said basically the width, the pitch doesn't really change. Um, you can't there's not a drastic amount of of width. Teams will play in the same sort of way. Wide, you're going to have three or four players um, in defence, maybe five, depending on your system. But it's not going to change too much there. But obviously, there is more depth than there is width um, on a on a football on a football pitch. So, occupying width in terms of making sure that you're covered and and you're stretching a team as much as you can is absolutely key. But it's then that vertical stretching that you want to try and get where. There is so much more space a team could play a low block a mid block a high block they could be low mid high press um and and just sort of figuring that out um there's more variables i think in that so it was making sure that you were covered primarily for counter attacks uh pressing etc making sure you were covered and you had enough players in each centrum if you like uh on the width side but for the attack um you wanted to make sure that you were focused on Trying to get in and take advantage of of whatever gaps the opposition left in a kind of vertical way. So that that was my take on on what he meant for that. And and when I read it, I thought that made a lot of sense given the actual physical dimensions of a pitch that were that we're talking about.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. All right. And then the third piece that jumped out to me. I love this. This this uh, this was really really interesting. Now you, the the flat midfield three. So I know you talk about this a lot. Uh, in the detail so uh, like can you just give us uh, i suppose a little little snippet of of, of what this is
1: so this is quite interesting because this performed very well for as i mentioned stephen davis and glenn kamara coming in, in in january 2019 um and obviously the the game that you're talking about here is is the one each game um uh, away to porto in october 2019 um this did work very very well in certain circumstances and I think mentioned before the challenges that we just face can vary, very, very different from playing away against Porto to at home against Motherwell St Mirren, Hamilton. Um so we have to almost have two different philosophies. Um games where we don't have the ball are sort of few and far between. And that's where I think this this sort of flat midfield three came into came into being. Um the three of them are very, very similar players. Um you could argue that they're all number sixes probably. Um so it's, it's a very, very interesting thing. And I think it is something that Gerard possibly tried to do at Villa for a for a bit is, is give that sort of defensive structure. Um I mentioned how Glen Kamara and Ryan Jack would all would would first of all their primarily primarily would be lateral cover for the fullbacks to make sure that they weren't getting caught in transition. They could come out of the way, cover in that way, offer angles for Philip Hellander, uh, Connor Goldson to come out with the ball. So they would cover laterally as well. And because it was three of them, obviously they didn't have too far to go. So they could still maintain their shape in there. You had Stephen Davis as generally the central six who'd be in charge of build-up play and ball progression from from deep. So all three of them were capable um, and they all sort of interchanged. But as you can see from this, this is the average positions from the from that game. So they literally all played in a line and they offered that, that barrier to protect the centre backs as you can see the full backs are, are very fi- far forward when you consider we're playing against Porto I think we had I don't know 35% possession probably less than that to be honest so um, they offered that barrier first and foremost which was great and it served us very very well in say from January 2019 through until March 2020 when, when Covid hit that was very very good. On the flip side of it, and I think I mentioned in, in more detail in this in this chapter, um, in games where you're trying to break down a low block, uh, I think there's a St Mirren example uh, in the book, three essentially defensive midfielders when you're trying to break down a low block isn't, uh, there you go, you've read my mind, um, having three central midfielders when you're trying to break down a low block isn't exactly what you want and I think it's a, a similar issue that, that uh, Klopp maybe had uh, in the early years where he was focused on that sort of functional three midfield um, relied on the fullbacks to get forward but he maybe wasn't able to create from deep until maybe a Thiago comes into the team so um the great if Rangers could get a Thiago but that was pretty unlikely a couple of years ago so it, it had its moments, it had its positives and it had its negatives, it was great for big games uh, and it really kept us in games a lot, they did a fantastic job the three of them, but interestingly, when we then changed in the fifty-five season to one number six and two free eights or two attacking eights, um, that to me was the most important evolution of the team. Um, and I, I would say was was probably one of the most important parts of of actually taking the handbrake off and and going and breaking down these low blocks and ultimately winning the title. So that was a it was a bit of an interesting one to go through because you would sort of ultimately or i would maybe paint that as as negative that that midfield 3 but then when you actually delve into the detail of it and you think about the platform they gave the team the structure that they were able to to implement there and then obviously evolving it further to go and do something else is great but i think we still need to appreciate just how how solid that that three was and what they gave to the team
0: Hello coaches, we'll take a quick break here. Massive thanks to Keyframe for teaming up with us again on these podcasts. Video is a great coaching tool, but Telestration is proven to take video to the next level. Keyframe improves understanding, aids retention, saves time when you're making those player videos as a coach. Telestration is normally expensive and hard to produce. Keyframe Sports solves these problems. It's simple to use, fast to learn, Works with any video provider and is affordable. Also, you can work within the cloud to store it and use it there as well. Check out Keyframe now, Keyframesports.com. Thank you. Back to Adam. I'm fascinated by like structured under the ball, and obviously, like in recent years, we've we've get this in coaching circles. This, you know, how to how to prevent counterattacks with structure and Guardiola and the work he's done with that there. But when we talk about structure and freedom, this creates a lot of freedom. In those higher spaces, to move and 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 almost take risks.
1: You're right. I think you can see there as well. We had John Flanagan playing in this game where James Lavernier wasn't available, so he was able to help in the structure defensively because he's not not great on the ball um, and not uh, not necessarily an attacking fullback. So in this game, we're effectively playing with six players whose whose key or whose primary ambition is to uh, defend or, or do work behind the ball if you like and it only left us with 4 ahead of the ball which with all due respect at home to St Mirren you're probably looking for Rangers to have 2 or 3 behind the ball rather than than 6 so the structure here is great and looks really really sound I think in terms of the context of a a, a sort of philosophy or a coaching game but when you add in the, the, the sort of context of the actual game and what we're trying to do it maybe wasn't as effective
0: yeah, I, I really enjoyed just the, the way the book was laid out with, from a coaching standpoint, from philosophy to structure, and then you've gone positionally as well, and then you talk about the that evolution is a, is a really really interesting piece because again we're almost in a society today that pigeonholes. We talked about Klopp and Gerard there. We're almost in a society that wants to pigeonhole someone as this as this. But you do a really good job of how there was movement in his coaching and and what he was trying to do. That's that's so important for coaches
1: to learn yeah I think I didn't want to make it a, a Michael Beale coaching manual or, or a rip off of, of Michael Beal's blog if you like I absolutely thought it was important to have that tactical philosophy element at the start but it was really important to me to include tactical influences like obviously Gerard had, had Rafa Benitez and, and um, Gerard Houllier and then Klopp for the small amount of time that they spent together and then Michael Beale with Ancelotti and Rogers,
0: and... Too. Don't, don't forget Brandon
1: Rogers don't forget brendan rogers that's not a name that i usually say too often but yeah don't forget him um michael bill as you wouldn't be was maybe more of a bobby robson and and carlo Angelotti and marino type person so i wanted to dig into that and just see these are the guys these are the influences that these guys are saying they had how does that play out in terms of their then philosophy um so i wanted that to be in the book but i didn't want it to be the full amount of it it might appeal to maybe me and you gary in terms of tactical philosophy and that's great but I'm very aware particularly on the podcast that I do and and on Twitter etc. I always try and make sure that I'm not going too heavy on the theory and and I'm sort of adding in maybe context for people that maybe don't know or or aren't as interested in tactics and and theory so that was where I thought to split the book into the parts and show the formation evolution like I mentioned and say yeah it did start as a 433 but then we, we maybe changed it to uh, a 4-3-2-1 with the, the twin tens coming in and then you could maybe argue it changed again with uh, the number eights uh coming into it in the 55 season um so i wanted to show that and then the player part for me as it said in the book was as huge um some of the players that were there throughout alfredo morelos as an example started out as a kind of focal point but still quite young and precocious at, at 21 to, to what he was when we won the title basically as a as a kind of complete forward um, that evolution there, it wasn't just as simple as when well, Morelos has been there for five years. How did he change? How did he build-up play? How did his link-up play change? Was he still that sort of force of nature, both in terms of physically on the pitch and then also in terms of his tactical structure? So that was really, really big for me to, I guess, try and cover all bases, make it accessible to people that maybe aren't as interested in tactics, but then at the same time make sure that I was accurately describing what the evolution was as well. Um, and then the last part that I thought would would be good was the signature goals point that I've I've put at the end where we picked um, five five goals that I thought really summed up what what the team did uh, the philosophy of of Stephen Gerrard's uh, and I picked those out and put them in and just explained the situation for that one. But some of those goals we probably scored ten times over the three years. Um, particularly one of the the set piece goals. I think there was a period where we scored the same goal three or four times against Celtic, uh, that sort of flick on by Geordie by Bowen, someone coming in the back post. So I thought that was really useful just in terms of, I think set pieces are still quite under-loved. Under you don't see much analysis. It's starting to come a little bit more. I know there's a few dedicated accounts on, on Twitter, etc. I'm by no means an expert, but just when I, when I see something like that, I think I find that interesting. It's a big part of, of football, yet no one really talks about it too much. We only really talk about it if it goes wrong. So I thought, let's try and highlight um highlight that within there as well
0: fantastic yeah um let's we'll finish up with some opinions then from you um obviously i i grew up in, in northern ireland so like at a time when rangers sell they were like one of their i don't know in my world it was it was you know fierce rivalry in the 80s and 90s yeah. rangers um it was the you know, the terry butcher era and then it was the Gaza era um where does Gerard for you as a as a Rangers fan, where does he sit with the greats? Uh,
1: it's a, that's a difficult one because I would say personally, and I think most Rangers fans would be the same. This title that that he won was the most important title um, probably ever, or, or certainly in the top three, just because of um, the significance of it. It, it sort of the, the the journey back that Rangers went from from 2012 up to to 2021. Um, very, very important, that was the end point, if you like, to, to sort of finalise and close that chapter. It felt like some points we were not going to get there under the previous manager. So from that point of view, I think the title itself is is very, very important. You also have to add in, obviously, stop Celtic Doing 10 in a row as well, which for a lot of people um has another significance too, which makes it even more important as well. Um. And then you add in the third strand for me, which is the European performance. Obviously, we went and and exceeded that last year under Van Van course by by getting to the Europa League final. But those three years or the four years, really, if you include that that last season as well, are, are the best four years in Europe that Rangers have had ever, in my mind. Um, obviously, ninety two ninety three, we got uh, we did very very well in the inaugural Champions League. But in terms of consistency, sixty or seventy games, that we had, um. We were in every game. We, we never got um, an absolute doing up until maybe last week against X. But in terms of um, in terms of that staying in the games and giving us some pride in Europe isn't something that Scottish teams get very much. So I think people will have a lot of respect for him for that uh, as well because he was able to give us that back and give us a a platform on the European stage uh, as well. So. With all of that, I think it's not just as, as straightforward as where does he rank uh, in terms of managers. I think it's there's, there's a whole lot more and there's a, a hell of a lot more uh, emotion to it. So in terms of, the, I'm going to dodge the question, I'm not going to give you an answer in terms of where I think he sits in terms of, of the other managers. But in terms of the title win, um, it was the most important for me, the one I certainly have enjoyed the most. Uh, and more so because of this evolution, the tactical evolution over the three years, I was able to document and sort of understand and see the incremental growth and see how things are going. So for me, it was probably the most important. It was certainly the best in terms of uh, unbeaten season, um, British domestic defensive records, winning the league by huge amount of points, winning it in record time. But for me, it was the most satisfying as well because of the style that went through. So for that, uh, it'll always hold a sort of special place in my heart for, for giving as that um, uh, as well. So... Yeah, I'm not going to answer the question in terms of a top three or top four or top five, but it was for me the most important and the most satisfying that I've I've been um, present for.
0: In a general way, what has Van Bronckhorst done in consistency? Has he changed the system a lot? Is there a lot of consistency? Like, how do you how do you compare the two managers tactically?
1: Well, obviously we've come off of a, a horrendous week with with 2-4-0 uh 2 4 defeats one in uh one against the no firm derby and, and one against Ajax uh away last week which I was un- unlucky enough to be in Amsterdam for um so maybe opinion has slightly uh slightly soured a little bit there are some fans calling for his his head even even at this early stage and given we got to Europa League final um last year so opinion Fan opinion is maybe at its lowest that it's been for um six or seven months. But in terms of the style, um, I'm not sold on it. To be honest, it's quite similar to Gerard in the sense that it's quite cautious. But there seems to be less of a less of a style going forward. Less sort of repetitions and automations in terms of of that relationship we spoke about with with the left triangle, the right triangle, the front three. Uh, he's a much more flexible manager. I think in Europe, in the knockout stages, he's really enjoyed playing against a team and sort of trying to fuel them out, and then in the second game, devising a game plan to then go and win the game. And every knockout game that he's been involved in—Dortmund, Braga, Red Star, Leipzig, PSG—like those are big teams that he's he's got the better of of their managers. So from that point of view, he has been fantastic. But domestically. Uh, I feel like we have progressed a little bit, maybe back to, to sort of the second season under Gerard where um, we are struggling not having those repetitions and automations, being a little bit more cautious, maybe playing more players behind the ball than we have to. Um, he's maybe a little bit too flexible, whereby he'll change things during games that maybe had been working well the game before. Uh, and sometimes you just need to let things go and let the players get, get a rhythm and, and start going and beating teams. So it's a very complex thing. I think most people would would probably say that a month, two months ago, absolutely much better than than Van, uh, much better than Gerard. Mostly in part because of how Gerard left, I think, and no one really wants to, no one really wants anyone to leave them. So I think that there's probably a lot of emotion flying around for that. For me, I think Van Bronckhorst has had some some great moments, some fantastic moments that will live with me forever. But in terms of the domestic scene, I'm not quite sure. I think he maybe just is a little bit too cautious, or maybe overestimates the opposition that we're that we're playing against and doesn't quite go full throttle which you probably need to in the domestic games where you're getting 60 70 percent of the play so um i'm not quite convinced that he should be sacked or or anything like that i think the jury is out definitely uh, and I'm, i'm sort of skeptical but we've seen rangers managers come back from much worse than than this and pull things around so we'll have to wait and see but certainly I don't enjoy it as much tactically as I did under Gerrard um, which I guess is is the main thing for me. Um, so from that point of view I, I would say um, it's not quite as as satisfying despite the absolute highs of getting to Europa League final and winning the Scottish Cup. I would say what we're seeing league-wise uh, isn't quite as satisfying as it was.
0: Last two questions for you. Who do you enjoy tactically these days, like who, who's someone in, a, in another league that you make sure you watch?
1: Uh, so I would say just now, um, Graham Potter, absolutely at Brighton. I think that's that's really interesting. That's a, a sort of flexible approach on finding to find out how he's going to do at Chelsea because obviously he's not necessarily known as a, a man manager. I guess he's much more of a, a tactician. He obviously is a great man manager, but you know what it's like when when you get into a dressing room probably like Chelsea and, and with um, world-class players or, or more world-class players, it's always interesting to see how that dynamic shifts. So that's one that, that I find really uh, interesting. And then obviously Mikel Arteta uh, was at Rangers as well, so I've always got a bit of a soft spot for him um, watching the All or Nothing documentaries and, and watching Arsenal um, bits of last season, I guess, and, and starting this season. I really appreciate how they're playing. To me, that's the next evolution that I would like this Rangers team to make is, is to to go and be in, in that sort of style that Arsenal have maybe not absolute frenetic all out um, pressing or, or all out possession but just that nice balance that they've got I think to be able to switch between between the two um, so I would say right now if you were to hold a gun to my head and say who do you want to watch uh, in the Premier League I would say it would probably be um, Arsenal and Brighton I guess but more, more, more likely Arteta and, and Potter given he's, he's just left
0: I'm not gonna put you on the spot for your best player of all time. Give me your top three Rangers players of all time.
1: Top three Rangers players of all time. Wow. Uh Ali McCoist, I think. Uh I don't know anyone outside of Celtic fans who don't who doesn't love Ali McCoist. Um absolute. Me growing up, I was what age? So nineteen eighty five. So McCoyst was already at the club when when I was born. Um and when he left I was sixteen. So having your very own Royal Rovers um growing up is just one of the most special things you can ever ever have so it will always be number one for me um 100 Uh, and then after that i'm probably going to go brian loudrup um again probably one of the world class players that came to rangers when i was maybe or nine um obviously in the the um euros with with denmark and he came and just low up Scottish football for for the three of the four years that he was that he was here, um. So I think that's definitely the top two, uh, and then I would say number three, um, would probably be Paul Gascoigne again for the for the same reasons. Maybe wasn't here very long, um, only sort of three years compared to how four, but just the moments that will just live with you forever. Just you, know, no one needs to explain what Paul Gascoigne was all about, but I felt like Rangers we got the best of him, um, for certainly two of those years and certainly the first season in particular he, he basically won a league single-handed for us, scored a hat-trick in, in the last game um, which was the second league title I've seen and just being in the stadium that day when when it was one each and he just grabs the ball and he's own half down at the edge of the box and just runs for 60, 70 yards and sc- scores. Um, These are just very, very special moments when you're 9 or 10. So. Um, those will live with me forever. So yeah, I think that's probably my top three. Uh,
0: Gaza was class. Gaza was class, but something came up funny. Like, I've, I've always loved Gascoigne. Something came up a few weeks ago on Loudrop and um and I stuck it on. I, was, I think it was on YouTube and I just thought, ah, for, I haven't seen Loudrop. Like, oh my God, what a footballer. He's outrageous. I think,
1: yeah, I think there's maybe a personality thing there. He's, he's the absolute polar opposite of, of Gascoigne. Um, he's just very, very calm and laid back. Probably Quite typically Scandinavian, but just an absolute Rolls Royce of a mm. player. You think someone of that height and build, he wasn't necessarily slight or yeah, a but just mm. just the pace that he had, just that that sort of burst of pace and the control and some of the goals uh, he scored. Yeah, for me, um, it's one of those. He's the the sort of ideal, if you like. But then guys like Gascoigne are one of those those that. Uh, Players that you think really shouldn't be a footballer by, by looking at their physique, but they're, they're absolutely fantastic. So it's a nice little uh, comparison between the two.
0: Okay. Um, where can they get the book? Best place
1: so, to get it? The best place for me, uh, selfishly, is the Heart and Hand website. So I'll share yeah. that link with you and you can put it in the comments, but it's heartandhand.co.uk forward slash Gerard's Blueprint. If you want to order on there, I will send a signed copy. If you don't want a signed copy, I, I won't sign one. I won't be offended. Um, Other than that, you can get at usual places, Amazon, Waterstones, Smiths, really anywhere that anyone wants to buy I'll be massively appreciative of.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, we'll definitely definitely get the links out there. Um, I know you always say it, well, I I don't know you say it, but like every time a book's written, the person always says, I'm never doing it again. But then there's a lull in about two or three months, usually the head reappears and you start thinking again, have you another one in the ideas or anything planned?
1: I like think my head is just starting to lift uh and, yeah. and I'm starting I'm starting to think maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing that ever happened in my life. Whereas uh, maybe six months ago I'd have been like absolutely no chance. So yeah. Um I think I've got quite a good format here, maybe selfishly, but I think in terms of what I've got here, I could see it being applicable to um maybe some previous Rangers teams. Um I won't go into detail and tell what, what they'd be or, or whether I want to put any pressure on myself. Or, but there are one or two examples that, that jump out to me that I think, if uh, I want to, if I want to take that stress and try and remove the last of my hair um, by by writing another book, then um, there are a couple of of, uh, of options. Right, now, I'm just enjoying, enjoying the break uh, and making sure that I can get uh, get this book um, the attention it deserves. I think for certainly for the story of, of Gerard, so that's the the aim for just now.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Adam, thank you so much. Congra- massive congrats! The book's top class, like, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm going to push it right to to everyone who's, who's interested in tactics, which is a lot of coaches, and they all should be reading it. So, congrats on the work. It's top class. It's really, really well put together. You've done a brilliant job in 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 meshing this crazy world of theory and practice and philosophy. So, um, thank you. I'm shocked you're not a coach and you're not an analyst. So <laughs> you need to do
1: more of it. No, no, nothing at all. Just basically a, a a bedroom, what was it, a bedroom gangster or a, a keyboard gangster in my bedroom, essentially, that's, that's all I've got. Yeah, but thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
0: No problem. Hey, we'll keep in touch. Thanks so much, Adam.
1: Cheers, Gary. Thank you for listening to the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. For more coaching topics, sessions and resources,